I'm trying to do the open window thing, you know, let some fresh, there's no fresh air. The fresh air it's is just, all gone. It's, it's hot, humid, nasty. <laughs> it, it went somewhere else. It's not here. All we have is dank, wet air. It's disgusting. What's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to Bean Radio. Really remembering that adoption is about people, I think is what helps it move forward. And it's really easy to get people excited about Elixir, I think. You could achieve an internal web app in half the amount of time with half the number of people. I know it sounds like marketing speed, but literally, it that is what happened. All right, hello and welcome to the latest edition of Beam Radio. We have got some very special guests for you guys today, which we will introduce in just a moment. But first things first, I want to give a big welcome to our fabulous panel of hosts. We are joined by Stephen Nunez. Hey, Stephen. Hello, everyone. Hi, Stephen. We've got Alex Kutmos. Hi, Alex. Howdy, howdy. And of course, as always, Bruce Tate. Hey, everybody from Chattanooga, Tennessee. Hey, Bruce, welcome. And I am uh, your final host, Sophie DiBenedetto. A couple of announcements before we get into all the good stuff in today's episode. Some of our listeners might know that we've got SpawnFest coming up in September. If you don't know what SpawnFest is, I'm just going to read you this excellent one-sentence description that they have helpfully placed on the website. It is an annual 48-hour online software development contest in which teams from around the world get exactly one weekend to create the best Beam-based applications they can run. So uh, you better bet that we are very excited to see what comes out of SpawnFest this year. And I'll also add that it is 100% free to participate and all Beam languages are welcome. So check it out if you're interested. And I will also promote our process mailbox. We love it, love it, love it when our listeners ask us things about the Beam, about Elixir, Erlang, uh, whatever. Ask us about ourselves. Who doesn't love chatting a little bit about themselves? Why not? So you can hit us up on Twitter at beamradio one and you can just add that hashtag process mailbox and just ask us a question. We would love to answer them live on the air and you might just win an absolutely fabulous Beam Radio t-shirt. That's right, I said it, free t-shirt. So we would love to hear from you guys. All right, uh, before we move into our main host and our main content for today, we would love to hear a word from our sponsor, Graxio. Bruce, what's new with Graxio? Yeah, about this time, we're getting pretty far into Ecto. So we're going to be talking about the designs and, and kind of the CRC pattern that we like to work with that's construct, reduce, and convert. And it really makes a big difference as you're designing those Ecto layers. Now, you can get, get the information about how to use the individual APIs just about anywhere, but sometimes the design information about about Ecto and, and how to weave that into your application, sometimes that's hard to come by. So that's our focus. I've been going through that course and it's really, really good. If you've never done anything on Graxio, the thing I love about it is that you get both videos and a book that gets updated. So when you got some time to read, you can sit down uh, and, and hear Bruce's soothing voice in your head as he reads to you, but also the videos are super helpful. Um, and it's been really good so far. Maggie calls me the Bob Ross of the programming world. And I'm not sure how I feel about that right now. I'm the Grotta Fro. Well, I think it's definitely a compliment and I can't say I disagree. All right, with that, I am going to hand it over to our main host from our fabulous panel today, and he will introduce our topic and our very special guests. Alex, take it away. Thanks, Sophie. Yeah, today we're going to be talking about uh, adopting Elixir and Beam languages, and uh, I have had poor uh, uh, 
uh, a poor track record with this in the past, given that I've tried to introduce uh, Elixir to a couple of organizations and uh, have not been successful that, but hopefully we can learn from uh, Nikos Marulis today and Joel Kemp on how to do that successfully. Hey, Nico. Hey, Joel. Hey, guys. Thank you for uh, having us here today. Yeah, hi. Uh, big fan. Happy to be here. Cool. So I was wondering if you guys can walk us through, you know, what your Elixir stories uh, look like, how you guys got into, you know, the Beam, you know, what, uh, where you're working at now, what you're doing with Elixir today. I will start because our, our stories are a little bit connected at the end. So actually, uh, I'm writing Erlang from uh, 2009, and um, I was lucky to be in the first, you know, Erlang conferences about, you know, but back in the day, it was just like 50, 60 people in every Erlang factory. So. Yeah, the community was really nice. Um, so again, I have done multiple companies in the past. We're using a lot of Erlang and other, uh, you know, crazy tools. And uh, um, um, over the last eight years, before before uh, start with Elixir, I was also trying, you know, um, in the companies I used to work in the past, uh, you know, to introduce them more to Erlang. And uh, you know, it, it wasn't so easy pitch back in the day. So with Elixir, uh, I started about in 2017. Uh, and this because I was building again a new company and I did something to, uh, I mean, I love Erlang, but it was so hard for some things like, for example, you, you need an adjacent API, you know, it was overboard in Erlang and you have to do this stuff. So Elixir sounds, you know, better. Plus also I was need to hire more people. So Elixir seems like an easier pitch. Uh, and after that, just, I just fell in love with, uh, mostly with the community and remind me a lot about um, also the good things also from Ruby or community back in 2008, like all this passion and, you know, people who want to do stuff. So uh, I will say I'm writing Elixir almost the last four, four and a half years. And um, and currently I'm working for Spotify and uh, I started introducing them there to, to Elixir and uh, over, over the last two years. And uh, I mean, we're gonna talk more about it later, but uh, this is, you know, my really uh, fast explanation about how I'm using Elixir. I wasn't really looking for Elixir and hadn't heard of it. But I was at a time, I, I would sum up my Elixir story as right time, right place, right people. And I was trying to proactively scale a service by finding its bottlenecks. I, I had uh, an existing high traffic surface getting a couple thousand requests per second and wanted to double its traffic and see what would break internally. And I spent days and days looking at that system, looking at thread dumps, GC logs, uh, thread visualizations, and Java mission control, all sorts of tools. So we had a high traffic backend service that was receiving about a couple per second and to proactively scale that the traffic and seeing what internally. And to days really looking at thread dumps and GC logs and thread visualizations and Java mission control and uh, couldn't find anything really. Uh, couldn't see exactly what was falling over and couple that with the teams really struggling to understand what was happening under the hood and being able to then resolve or understand the root causes of incidents. And so those two things combined, Nico joined at around the same time and started talking about Elixir and singing his praises. And I think teams kind of reject new ideas early on. And, but I was really curious. And so I looked into it further and, found Sasha Yurik's talk on YouTube with the soul of Erlang and Elixir. And uh, I, I still remember that feeling, that visceral feeling. I was so ready for that, that information. And that sparked my interest. And 
And then I kept digging deeper and, and the rest is history. I really like that story. Uh, primarily because it aligns with, uh, with uh, you know, my uh, Elixir roots where I was running into problems with a lot of the tooling that I was using at the time. Uh, I ended up picking up Sasha Yurik's first edition of Elixir in action. And then just as you said, the same exact thing happened to me or I read the book and while I didn't fully grok or understand everything, I knew that I, you know, this was the right path to be on for, you know, for the next however long in my career. So I can definitely definitely relate to that story, uh, Joel. Yeah, I, I can relate to that one also. It seems like a lot of us are looking for many of the same things that as the as the problems that we're trying to solve are get a little bit more complex, and then you kind of add to the scale, and then you add to you you add add in some some streaming bits or some time sensitive bits, and then you add all the processes, all that stuff kind of combines to make this unmanageable soup that um, that until you get the right tools to deal with, until you have tools like we have in the Beam, they just, they're almost unmanageable. Absolutely. And uh, I think one, one of the problems that a lot of big companies have is that they're investing so much to abstraction, which actually it's, it makes sense because you, with abstraction, you know, you can, you can have a lot of people, especially, you know, um, uh, a lot of engineers doesn't, doesn't have to be, you know, super senior or, you know, staff and principals. So all, all engineers can contribute really fast. But the problem is when, you know, when you want to go beyond the abstraction, you know, that is, is not easy to do that. Uh, and, and the power actually of Erlang and Elixir is that it doesn't matter if you're using a library or a framework, you can so easily dive in and understand what's happening and, you know, who calls what and, you know, how you can, you know, find the state of a gen server, even in production, you know, and, this power, I think, is uh, unbelievable when you show to someone. Yeah, I completely agree. So the, the job that we have is not to eliminate complexity, right? It's the complexity is what makes the problems that we solve interesting. The, the problem is, is finding the abstractions that, ha that hide most of what we're doing at a time, right? So that we, abstractions help us focus on a small bit of complexity at a time. So I was a happy user of the JVM stack when we were dealing with low traffic. And so we had very infrequent visits to the website. And at that moment, you didn't really care about concurrency. You just, nothing would fall over really, even if you had something that was inefficiently configured. And when you start getting into the thousands of requests per second, that is when all of your mistakes, all of the misconfigurations, all of the ignorance really starts to add up. And that's when things start to fall over. And that's when you, in order to stop waking up at night, you have to kind of try to master the stack on your own. And the Beam offered just unparalleled levels of transparency with its deep introspection and so forth that, that saved the day, in my opinion. Yeah, 100% agree with that one. I mean, there's been many times when uh, you know, we had production Elixir systems and you know, perhaps there was a, a bug introduced by you know, one of the engineers. And the fact that you can get a remote IEX uh, session into a running production instance and fix things on the fly, you know, obviously this is not something you do day to day, but for the mission critical stuff, you can lean on that, uh, you know, that kind of escape hatch and, and save the team and the, you know, and the product um, while you kind of work on the actual bug fix on the side. But that, that is something you just can't get anywhere else. And it's, it's absolutely amazing. 
Um, yeah, and this also was part of our pitch, right? Uh, because we are also on call for the code that we write. Like, it's it's down to what kind of system you want to have when at 3 a.m. you have to wake up and fix something. And um, usually Elixir is the kind of system that can help you more to solve your problem uh, or at least identify the issue, um, you know, faster. Yeah, I think it's uh, like tools like Promix uh, that I'm working on right now, I, I don't think would be, you know, would be possible in other ecosystems ju just because that level of observability and transparency, like you said, Joel, just uh, you know, just is not uh, available. It's not really baked into the runtime and the and the language as a as a first class citizen. So I think I think in that regard, uh, Beam languages and Elixir are really kind of setting the setting the standard for what runtime should provide to to DevOps SREs and even engineers so they can they can see what's going on. One of the other tools along the, those lines that I found when I was digging in just at the very beginning into the, the beam is this tool called Visual Elixir. And it allows you to see a graph of all processes and it shows you supervisors and so forth. And it shows you like zombie processes that eventually die. And it shows you the communication paths. So the message passing back and forth. And my mind was blown yet again. And that's exactly what I wanted in the JVM and it just wasn't there. Those tools are really enabled by the beam. And it's just, it's a pleasure to see that type of stuff that's possible. It's very, very foreign from what I'm used to with like the JVM and with Node and so forth. You just, you can't get those types of tools. And the places that do provide them, provide them at such a premium, right? It's kind of, it's kind of the cycle, right? It's, it's, you can't, you can't configure, you can't tune your system to, to run in minimal resources so that you have to pay more for the services that help you observe what you're doing. And then, um, and then, so without those systems, you can't build better software to, you know, it's just, it's kind of a circle that, that gets away from you. And I also would say that like, these are the kind of tools that also really lower the barrier to entry and kind of like give Elixir this really nice gentle learning curve. And I'm thinking in particular of even something as simple as like the Erlang Observer. And Stephen and I have this uh, RabbitMQ and Elixir workshop that we've given a couple times now. And I think one of the moments that you really see things connect for people in a really exciting way is when we build a supervision tree and then just actually look at it and then like right click on and kill processes in the Erlang Observer and watch things kind of come back to life depending on your supervisor strategies. So just little things like that um, really help people make these connections and get excited about what they can build and just kind of really shoot them off to the races in their learning. And I think that that's something that Elixir and like the Beam ecosystem in general does really well. Yeah, I think it does a really good job at, at introducing new concepts at complexity, right? You think actors and supervisors and all this stuff is like kind of unique as to the, to the application programmer, maybe not to like a systems architect that has, you know, super, uh, system D and whatnot. Uh, but you introduce to the developer and they're like, whoa, this is all new and this is all very hard and I'm having a hard time. Like, but look, you can see it. Very nice looking uh, graphs and charts that show you exactly what's happening and you can play around with it. Um, so I think that there's a good balance there and super useful with adoption because you're saying, uh, here's this new concept, but also here's this easy way to interact and understand it. Yeah. And actually this is very important because uh, I have a lot of exa example of other engineers that, uh, you know, they're very good engineers and in other systems, like for example, in Java world, they're using thread pools and thread executors and, you know, all these abstractions, abstractions. And, and at the end of the day, they don't actually understand what's happening. I mean, 
they know there is a, a you know a thread pool and have more threads and you know supposedly can send work to do there but you know they, they don't get it and after reading uh sasa's amazing book you know they say you know even if i don't writing if even if i'm not going to write elixir this helped me a lot to understand actually in java how some things works and uh, this goes back like uh elixir and erlang they have such a you know because of the functional um, aspect you know they have such a easy way to see things how it works so I, th- I think I think most people they should just try it even if they don't want to do it in the day-to-day job. You know, it, it, I think it's going to help them understand how system works. And I'll I'll say like to the to Sophie's comments on Observer. Yeah, I was talking about how it was really hard to find bottlenecks. They were there, I'm sure. I could not see them though uh, in the JVM stack. And when we built a clone of the that JVM service in in Elixir, I remember being able to fire up Observer CLI, which is like the the CLI-based one that you can fire up uh, as a library of your application in production. And I fired that up and I could reverse sort by process mailbox size. And immediately I saw a process, which was the, the, uh, it was a pool boy pool that managed all of the big table connections. We use big table as a database. And I could see that process mailbox piling up. And that immediately explained why I wasn't getting responses. The, the sum of all these things makes you eventually obsessed. I think that's kind of the point where I'm at, just having my mind blown uh, many, many times. But to be able to see the bottleneck within an hour versus having spent days digging and digging and feeling like you're some private investigator, you know, uh, pulling at clues to try and come up with a hypothesis and then have to strategize how you prove or disprove that. It was just right there in front of me, and that was that's mind blowing. It really is, and and I think that some of the some of the benefit is that when you have the abstractions and when when everything is going through the actor model, then you know you're not dealing with this tangle of threads with with multiple inputs and multiple outputs for each one. You're dealing with these entities that can be treated in the same way and that have this common resource like an inbox, right? And then once you have that inbox and once all of that's observable in a standard way, and once everything is started the same way and stopped the same way, then something like observer and, and all of the sister tools becomes possible. It's, it's really amazing. But even to Nico's point about education and understanding thread pool usage and so forth, Hey, one of the struggles, and, and you speak about the actor model, one of the struggles was very much so there's no primitive to reach for. There's an actual tax with utilizing new thread pools. And if you don't have the, the observability in place to exactly tell how this thread pool is affecting the overall latencies and throughput of your service, then you are scared to reach for it. Whereas within the beam, it is perfectly accepted. You just reach for a process. And everything kind of builds on top of that. And so even from an educational standpoint, when I'm onboarding, when we're onboarding people to the beam, you get to start with this really simple seed of an idea that is the actor model. And then from there, it's so simple that everyone gets it. And then from there, you start to talk about gen servers and supervisors, and you just build up in complexity. And I I could not do that necessarily with the JVM. So it's just, that's yet another dimension where I think the simplicity, the design choices, just allow people to become masters of this technology on their own. And that's really what I was looking for. 
Yeah, it's it's so fascinating to me. Uh, when when I was coding Java, probably the last couple of years of it, there was a book that was released, Java Concurrency in Practice by Brian Getz. And I can remember when he, he put out the first release of this book and said, your understanding of concurrency is just absolutely wrong. <laughs> you know, at the time, everybody was thinking that concurrency was was just these semaphores and locks, right? And controlling access that way. And this book, this massive book comes out and says with new processor designs, it doesn't really work that way. And uh, and then you get something similar from for Erlang and it's really these eight or 10 concepts that are just laid out in front of you. And, and it's marvelously observable, it's marvelously understandable and it's, it's a core abstraction all the way down to the core. Yeah, and I think I, I think the the beam is uh, you know, perhaps ahead of its time in that regard because we're seeing lots of uh, actor models being you know uh, created in other languages and ecosystems like Rust has one, Scala has uh, Akka, Swift I think is also introducing a uh, uh, an actor model. Then you have Ruby reactors. So you know clearly these these are really good ideas and good abstractions. I think this is a good segue into our topic for you know. I think we all agree we love uh, you know, Elixir and the Beam. We want to use it everywhere we possibly can. How do we get uh, how do we get companies to do it? And it seems like I think most developers agree that when the Beam is applicable for a problem, you should reach for it. And you know uh, those problems are generally like you know high concurrency uh, high concurrency uh, environments, or when you need good observability, uh, good debugability, fault tolerance. Uh, and we're seeing lots of uh, success stories coming out from larger companies like PepsiCo, Toyota Connected, Bleacher Report. Uh, but I was wondering how you guys were able to get Spotify to adopt Elixir and what services you started writing there that kind of you know convinced people that maybe this is this is a technology worth investing in. Yeah, I can I can, I can start with that. Um, so I, I joined Spotify, you know, the summer of 2019, and you know, uh, pretty much in Spotify, most of the most of my days spent them doing data engineering. So, you know, we're, as you know, we're a big Java, Scala, SOAP, and Spotify. We're heavy users of uh, Apache Beam. We even have our own framework on top of that. Um, and, and this is great, you know, this is great for, for batch processing. It's amazing, can scale a lot. But uh, so I remember I had, the, I had the task to do like a real-time pipeline that I have to get some messages. And it was very actually crucial, <laughs> those messages to be delivered on time. And um, so I, I, I started, you know, talking to other folks, saying, hey, guys, you know, Apache Beam is amazing, but we don't have visibility, right? It's a black box that Google handles for us. Um, if something goes wrong, you know, this is pop-up messages. If, if something's stuck there, you know, maybe go to dead letter queue, you know, you need to have more flexibility of what you want to do. And uh, the second thing is want to add a little bit more logic about how we write those messages. So I remember, um, you know, and, and I, so I, I was trying not to, not initially to start pushing for Elixir because in the past, in other companies, I had this Alex, similar to you, I tried to push it and I failed miserably. And I think the main reason was I went too aggressive on that. So in that case, uh, I tried to follow that, you know, let's first build it in, in um, you know, in, in the current stack and let's see the problems. And uh, so, so so we did that and actually we saw that we don't have the visibility. It wasn't about the scalability, right? And it's bad actually when you start to pitch Elixir to start about the scalability. This was my problem in the past. I was going to say, hey guys, with Erlang, I can have you know more through output. You know, it's uh, it, it, you cannot crash it. You're fighting with C plus plus another language. You know, this was my biggest mistake. So with 
with now with uh, with the Spotify, right? Hey guys, forget about performance. Performance you can get in both uh, ways, right? It's more about uh, how much more control you can have with Elixir. So pretty much, I asked from my manager, my team, hey guys, can I just have one week to write this in Elixir? And you know, worst case scenario, we can just rewrite this in Java, right? <laughs> you know, it's it's not a it's not a big thing. And 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 actually, this is a good start. You should have you should find a small project, like something that you can finish. Uh, you know, really fast and show them the results. So everybody could see, oh, okay, this guy, he just did the week. Yeah, maybe he knows so much Elixir, but he still did this in the week, right? With all the deployments and everything. So this was super fast about, you know, to start the project. And then I just saw them, you know, hey, now this thing's running to production and I can just log in from my laptop, you know, connect with my, sorry, connect from my laptop, uh, observe the messages. Uh, also the messages, you know, they are in some, uh, we're using Avram protobufs, so I can even, you know, get a message, decode it on the fly, on the production server. And I just saw them, you know, the power of, of, of Elixir you have. And also uh, about how easily now I can scale it and how I should not have to worry about, you know, thread pools and, you know, how I can organize, you know, from top to bottom my my state and other stuff. So I just start showing them uh, that, that. So I think they gave me enough um, buy-in to, to continue uh, explaining more about Elixir. Uh, I remember drop, I had the Elixir in action, I remember I dropped, to Joel's uh, desk and uh, to some other folks and say, hey guys, just read that and let me know what you think. And um, yes, I, th I think th this was the beginning. Like we, we find this service that uh, it was important, but you know, small task, like, you know, it, it could see easily. And um, I think the most important is to give to your teammates the, the confidence that, hey guys, uh, if, if this goes wrong, you know, we can always rewrite something else. So. A lot of people, maybe they think that they're gambling the career, right? A lot of people maybe think that, hey, my job is to do my tasks and not introducing new stuff. But, you know, uh, if you give them the, that confidence that, hey, guys, it's not such a big task, you know, you're not going to lose two months of uh, productivity here. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's easier to pitch. Joel, I don't know if you want to add, you know, from your side of the story. <laughs> There's like so much to say about adoption and strategies and so forth, I think. I think failure really depends on what it is you're optimizing for. Uh, are you optimizing for acceptance of this technology within your organization? Or are you optimizing for adoption of this technology within your organization? And I think if you just jump the gun and go straight for adoption, then it is you have an increased likelihood of failure there. Um, I think mainly because what you're doing when you are asking for permission is this, this is actually from an amazing book I read called Swarmwise that has been very helpful on this journey. When you're asking for permission, you're ultimately asking for someone else to be accountable for your decisions. And when you're asking for your organization to use the beam, ultimately you're asking for some decision maker to justify why there is increased fragmentation in the tech stack for the organization. And so the angle that I really thought about when we started this journey was I had noticed so many people, especially new folks that come to the, to the company and they're like, why are we using Java? We should be using Clojure. We should be using Kotlin. We should be using XYZ. I used that in my previous team and they loved it. And those surface level arguments, I think, are, are quite harmful. One, they, they make people immune to being responsive to actual objective criticisms and proposals. Um, but two, there's, that's just, I think you really shouldn't even bother with that. The angle that I really wanted to take with this was I focused on the beam and not Elixir. 
because the beam to me was that was really the heart of those design decisions and so forth were amazing and so i focused on i had like seven or eight dimensions of the beam and really wrote up an rfc it ended up being about 26 pages and wrote up an rfc that advocated for using this technology for for further experimenting with this technology for high traffic backend services and that i think was us putting our best foot forward to say this is not this is not about the language. This is about fundamental technology that solves these problems that we're having with the current status quo. And I think you're still, I think the angle though, even with that objective case was still asking for permission. And uh, that was just a hard sell because everyone has incomplete information. And I think there's also a problem where it's, I was ready to receive the beam because of the hardships I was having with the current stack. And it's, I think, only when you're experiencing those problems that you can truly appreciate what this technology offers. And most folks don't have that, I would say. Um, and so that's, that's difficult. It's just it, it takes a long time for people to understand why this matters. I think in addition to how you pitch this technology, understand the psychological aspects of trying to increase adoption of this technology, you really need to believe in this thing to be able to compare it to the status quo you need to be able to pitch it you need to have enough to get through the hard times when teammates reject it be able to dig deep to say I believe that this is worth it i think you have to put your reputation on the line for this technology if you choose to increase or it choose to bring the beam to your company i think you really have to <laughs> i think you have to be willing to go all out for it and it doesn't get any easier <laughs> Some might see what we've done with Elixir at Spotify as a failure in terms of the whole company doesn't use it. But I would say that it is a success in terms of building this grassroots swarm of interested individuals. And at the very least, what we've been able to accomplish is countering this common, I've never heard of Elixir. Like, what is that? And, and this kind of like fear uh, of this foreign tech. We've been able to really speak the wonders of it and increase the awareness of this technology, which at the, you know, if that's all we accomplish, I think we're, we're chipping away at that intuitive fear of the unknown. And this is a good point. Like actually we put a lot of time, uh, a lot of effort, um, you know, to, to do a lot of, you know, lunch and learns, uh, you know, Spotify has an internal conference for technology. So I was presenting there. I remember actually present there the second time live view and everybody else was like okay is this like graphql or something they say no guys this is something new you know the, the thing you should do is like to pitch elixir but you know it's also hard to steer away from you know uh, a flame war or a comparison like you need you need to find a, a unique angle to pitch elixir as something that can improve uh, your productivity so personally i find with our teams say spotify works a lot when you're pitching two things like this can help you with visibility observability sustainability, you're on call. So this is one aspect. And the second is with the productivity. Like um, I saw them how fast they can, you know, you know, have a lot of ideas, right? And we're a company that we have an amazing product. So we want a lot of time to spin up something fast. We want to try an idea. We want to try, you know, a new a new page. So I, I, we just saw them that, you know, with, with a stack, it's called Phoenix and Live View, you can actually spin up a site, uh, you know, in, 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 in an hours, I mean, also to create something. And, and you don't have to worry about scalability. You don't have to worry about observability. Like, and you can write so fast code. And uh, one actually interesting project that 
we have over the last year is like we have an internet, uh, you know, an, an internal page that we're using a lot for um, uh, monitoring and you know for a lot of information. And the cool thing is we developing now this um, this service just with other colleagues. That the most of them they're not even front end engineers. The most of them, you know, they haven't you know their data or backend, and 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 still without even to know so you know this. Just with basic elixir, you know, they can contribute to the live view page. They can, you know, write in the back end, they can also write in the front end, they can write tests. I mean, of course, Joel and I have put a lot of effort to create, you know, an environment for them to feel, uh, you know, more cozy to do that. But, 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 but still, you should see people how happy they are to contribute, you know, to this project. Um, and uh, it's, I, I think, also helped them a lot to learn more stuff. It helped them a lot to go outside of the comfort zone. And, um, and I, agree, I, I agree with Joel. Initially, a lot of people thought, okay, I'm putting my career, uh, you know, on the line here, you know, everybody else tell me not to do it, but, uh, you know. Yeah, I think uh, the RFC and trying to tackle high traffic backend services, I, I could see that even though the Beam offered value, it, and, and to, in my opinion, immense value along numerous dimensions compared to the status quo, I think there's this pervasive trend of worse is better and that if something kind of is okay, yeah, there's pain there, but we can work towards making it better by supplementing with education and so forth. Then I think it's a hard sell. Yeah. When I was doing the research for the RFC and we had the opportunity, like Nico was saying, to build an application, an internal application, and we wanted to experiment with live view. The constraints really around that problem were that we had no front end engineers on the team. We needed to build a web app and this needed to be done very, very quickly. And we couldn't really devote many people to it. And it was, the deadline was for a launch and we needed this tool to really understand how campaigns were being booked and so forth. And so live view, at least on paper seemed to check a lot of those boxes. And so we experimented with that. And in retrospect, it was a much easier sell from a business value perspective, because what we found, what we found really is that you could achieve an internal web app in half the amount of time with half the number of people. I know it sounds like marketing speed, but literally it, that is what happened. The status quo requires a single page application with a Java backend API and you basically need two people for that because JavaScript engineers don't really like to touch, touching Java and, and vice versa. And so, uh, but it would also take them at least a week to get the first feature up, maybe even a sprint with all the configuration and so forth. And we were able to achieve that. I remember hacking on the first feature and I had no experience with Phoenix Live View. And that same day I shipped the first feature. And then the next day I got it into production. And I was just blown away by that. And in retrospect, we've been at it for a few months now, the surface area of that application is so massive and it's been done largely by like one or two people. And, and to Nico's point, the contributions have been very atypical, all backend and data, no front-end engineers have contributed to this and it is a proper web app. And so uh, I think that message has come across. I haven't had to, like, we haven't had to write 26 pages for live view, but, and it's been such an easy sell. So I think it's, I think it speaks to this persistence. I think it speaks to, again, this conviction, trying things, even in the face of failure. And eventually you'll find something that meets the constraints of your organization, of your team and so forth. But all that said, 
it doesn't get any easier because now we have this successful tool and yes, it's been powered by LiveView and given the constraints of that, that moment in time, LiveView was perfect for this. The programming model really of LiveView was perfect for this. However, do those constraints still apply? When the tool becomes successful and, and leadership says, let's go all in on this tool, it's massively impactful for the organization. The question is, well, what about LiveView? And you know that wasn't the product itself and so then you have to really think about, okay, let's get back to live view. And we'd love to have this as a tool that we can utilize. You have to find its place. And again, it talks to acceptance versus adoption and so forth. So that the strategy never really ends there, even with the milestones of success. Yeah, so I love so much of, of what you said there. The first, the first thing is that you actually started not with not with the language wars, but with the pain, right? So you 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 started with a business problem and, and unless you're solving real business problems, you know, once the conversation is about language adoption, it's over. It has to be about what a language can do. Um, and, and you also mixed in the idea of pain. I think that that's so important that, um, that being able to do, to adopting a new language or, or any kind of new, of framework stack is is all is almost always expensive, right? And and when you can kind of make that make that transition or even a small piece of the transition in something that is is kind of reduced in scope and and in something that is already um, is already causing business pain, I think is just incredibly important. Yeah, and I do kind of want to draw out another theme that I'm hearing a lot from both of you guys, Nico and Joel, and it's really that. It's really about people, right? You guys both have spoken so much about how introducing LiveView got your colleagues so excited about what they could do in Elixir, whether it was from one of your first, I think Nico, you said you had done like a lunchtime discussion, like a lunch and learn and did a LiveView demo and people's kind of minds were maybe just blown a little. And Joel, you're talking about how amazingly productive just a small number of your team members who are not front end engineers were able to be building out this LiveView app. And this has really been my experience time and again just finding this little hook that gets your teammates excited about Elixir, whether it's something like, look how beautiful and clean your code is with all of these single purpose, uh, you know, reducer functions and pipelines and pattern matching, or, you know, look at how fun it is and how fast it is and how productive we are when we're building stuff in live view, like unlocking that excitement to me is like that first step that really pushes forward that acceptance and or that adoption. And I think that that's something that um, Steven and I have both experienced both at the Flatiron School and also um, our company had done this like three month engagement with another ed tech company. And this would have been like two, maybe more than two years ago, because what is time? And it was really the same thing. Like once you got people excited about what they were learning and what they could do, whether it was like lunch and learns or lots and lots of demos at the end of our daily standups, like really remembering that adoption is about people, I think is what helps it move forward. And it's really easy to get people excited about Elixir, I think. Yeah, that was one big thing that that I did when I was trying to build my small following of Elixirists over at the Flatiron School is I'd stay late and basically lead classes. Uh, that's how I hooked Sophie. Um, just like, isn't this cool? Just getting Actually, to the point where it's just that I'm very impressionable, I would say. Okay, well, that too. Um, <laughs> But yeah, just like, isn't this cool? Like, and then the other thing was almost trying to find things that would be near impossible to write in other languages without a ton of infrastructure. So like, I think a lot about like 
uh, supervision trees. So I think early on we wrote like a Slack bot in one of our quote unquote classes. And I was like, well, look at what happens if we purposely write code that's kind of garbage. Um, like, look, this thing crashes, but it just like loads up again and like loads state and resets itself. And it's kind of wonderful. Like, how would you do that in Ruby, which was the language of choice at the time? And just kind of prompting that discussion of like, oh, well, you know, I could write this in like, I don't know, Redis, <laughs> pull it out and read it at startup. And I'm like, yes, or you could do this beautiful, uh, use this beautiful platform that has so many primitives built exactly for these cases. Uh, what else does it apply to, uh, you know, things that require to, you know, be able to recover really quickly um, and like read its environment or fail gracefully. So I think that that's kind of like planting those seeds was really powerful, empowering people to learn things. And then at the same time, starting to edge towards those things that you can't rewrite in a weekend um, in Ruby or Java easily saying like, oh, this is actually kind of hard elsewhere. Speaking a bit more to the, the people aspect though, really when you're talking about people, I think there are like three buckets of, of people, right? There's leadership. And in our case, we've been very lucky with leadership. So we have two layers of management that are risk takers that believe in the benefits of pushing the status quo in terms of keeping the organization in a learning and adaptive mindset. And also they understand the growth benefits of really understanding, objectively understanding technology and going deep with it. And yeah, I mean, personally, I've leveled up a ton looking into the beam and understanding it to a level where I can make a case for it. And then just when you're getting folks excited about technology, folks that are going to be excited and will contribute, they'll accept it. And they're kind of at the fringes. But then I think what's also important to think about is that core circle of folks who are passionate. And like, you know, Stephen was mentioning, I think Sophie and, and Sophie being very open-minded and eventually be, you know, speaking the praises of the beam and so forth. And I think it's hard to find individuals like that, that are so open-minded and will gravitate to becoming champions of this technology. And so in order to carry the torch though, of, of surviving the, the long haul of, of acceptance and then adoption, I think you need to also focus on building more champions and you can't do it alone in terms of being the only one to speak the praises of it, especially because sometimes it gets really hard to integrate that technology with the existing infrastructure. And you have folks who are interested and accept it and will accept the technology, but when there's a major hurdle and some missing capability, they will complain and fight it. And then you're like, okay, well, no, I have to fix this. I have to fix this. And you want there to be more of just you, right? Uh, actually ironing out the bumps. And so that's difficult. Surprisingly, we've had many folks at Spotify who come in are hired in and they're like, I know about Elixir and they're from other parts of the organization. And, and that's really awesome for building this like grassroots community. Um, and so you have to keep an eye out for folks who can really help you iron out the bumps. And then also at the same time, focus on in, in convincing individuals that to the merits of this technology such that they accept it and are willing to try it. You know, I think that it's also that once you once you lead with a pain, right? Once if, if your organization is experiencing acute pain, if you're wise and if you listen to this, then that's an opportunity for for the right kind of adoption, right? Man, I really wish we had this conversation like four years ago, because everything that you guys said not to do, I did. And that's probably why I failed to get adoption at my organization. Um, but that aside, I'm kind of curious, uh, when you bring up Elixir, what kind of pushback do you hear from other people? And uh, you mentioned some bumps and ironing them out. You know, what are those, uh, those bumps that people usually come across? And you know, how do you kind of alleviate those or, or push them in the right direction? Initially, when uh, I started doing this in Elixir, the, 
I, th I think the main pushback is, hey, you know, the main reason we have Java is because we can use everybody else library, if, you know, everybody else uh, protobuf, Avroschema, you know, whatever we have, like, uh, you know, uh, constants, you know, from every project to every project. So if, if you want to do this in Elixir, pretty much you have to port everything. So, you know, from configuration, from, from everything. So I think this was the initial first pushback, like it's unnecessary work, like you're gonna just repeat the work that is already there. Uh, the second smaller pushback was about the libraries, like, hey, Java has everything, which I think it's kind of lie <laughs> because even the libraries that have seen Java, uh, then I see five, five more versions uh, of different variations. Anyway, um, this was the second pushback, not, not, uh, not as much as the first one. And, um, uh, and, and, and the third one, we touched a little bit with Joel uh, before, is like, I think it's, it's, it's the best factor. So they told me, okay, you build that, it's amazing. Uh, tomorrow for X, Y, Z reason, you're not here. Like you're leaving, you, something happened to you. So what's happening? Who's gonna take it? So, um, and this actually started happening more and more when uh, the first project went to production, then when we start doing other stuff and uh, to Joel's point, like then at this point you need to, you need to have some more people around you to, you know, to support you and, you know, give, uh, in general, your management and your, you know, in, in the upper level, you need to give them uh, the confidence that, hey, even if Nikos or Joel tomorrow is not here, there are five more people that can do that. I think the biggest, the biggest struggle was, uh, was that, like, what's, uh, you know, to, to have at least someone to, to fix that thing in production or to have someone that knows what's happening. Yeah, so, so one of the points of resistance really is around hiring and um, I think there's a bit of fear and certainty doubt there where we, we really don't hire for any sort of specialization. And so uh, that's not really an argument. Another argument is that you have to rebuild clients, which Nico said, and we've had that happen in two cases. Yeah. And then I think like you, you really don't want to be rebuilding clients when you're just trying to prove that this product works or rather prove that Elixir itself works. You're trying to get to a fit really within the organization as quickly as possible. And so uh, that's, that's a bit challenging. Um, and then I think also to this point about not uh, being familiar with the technology, I think a lot of folks say, well, in the JVM ecosystem, there's Project Loom that will come with virtual threads, and so that'll solve all of our problems. But I think uh, Stephen gave a talk about Ruby 3 and Raptors and kind of the adoption problems there, even on this podcast. And uh, I think, you know, this bolt-on attempts at changing the concurrency model don't really work very well underneath it all, you still have the same problems that you have at the virtual machine layer, where, you know, the Java case, you end up with cooperative uh, thread schedule and so forth that has its effects and so forth. Cool. Well, thanks, Nico and uh, Joel for all those uh, you know, amazing insights and uh, you know, great advice as to how, how to better approach this, uh, this um, topic of, of adoption and, you know, trying to kind of Sherpa these, these amazing concepts that we have available to us on the beam. So, um, yeah, with that, thank you guys very, very much. And uh, we'll see you guys next time on Beam Radio. I really wish I, I, I heard this episode like four years ago because I, like <laughs> yes. I, I wasn't joking there. Everything we all do. that not to do, I did it. Yeah, it's weird because like I think you sell the Beam in a, in a different way than another language. And it's just like you come out sounding like an insane person. And someone's <laughs> like, no, 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 but check this out. It's like it's got its whole thing. It's got a scheduler. Everything is great. You're like, okay, I need to go somewhere and leave me alone. I think that engineers driving this focus too much on the technical aspects and don't really connect to the people aspect of it. That's why it's so hard. This is like the hardest thing I've done at Spotify because 
you also have to be able to meet people where they're at and pitch this technology in different ways and make the business case for it. And there's so many groups of people that you convince and, and really that never, that doesn't seem to stop at any point in time.